Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to our podcast. I'm Daphne. And I'm Gina. And this is This Week in Skating. Daphne and I are going to bring you a new series highlighting our fellow figure skating podcasters. The Future of Figure Skating podcast breaks down the issues facing the sport and interviews the change makers and visionaries who are making the skating world a healthier and more inclusive place. The host and founder of the podcast is Anna Keller. Anna also has written and covered events for Anything GOEs, Golden Skate, and Absolute Skating. They recently had a two-part series on the future of pair skating. So we want to welcome Anna to This Week in Skating. Welcome, Anna. Hi, Anna. Hi, thanks for having me. We wanted to do this series, I think, as Gina said, we just kind of want to highlight some of the other people that are doing podcasting. But in addition to podcasting, you also are involved in the media piece of it, like going to events. So we thought this would be a great time to, you know, have you on the episode and just talk about how you got into this and kind of what your vision is for um, for your podcast and so much more. We'll see where the conversation takes us. But first, let's start with... How did you become a fan of skating? So I was a skater as a kid. I was of the generation that Michelle Kwan was on TV when I was growing up and I was, you know, spinning around my living room wanting to be just like her. Um, I skated recreationally and was told from the start that I was too tall to be a skater. So that had a lot of uh, formative things and still (laughs) probably influences some of how I think about inclusivity in skating these days. But I skated um, a couple of times a week through my being a teenager, finished high school, stopped skating, basically didn't think about it for the about 10 years. And then for a whole bunch of sort of coincidences ended up re-falling in love with it, both skating myself and becoming a fan in 2016, 2017 season. I think I work in politics as my day job and I felt like I needed an escape. And so skating became that though, as I'm sure we'll talk about, the politics of skating has ended up becoming a big part of uh, what I end up focusing on these days. So it all kind of comes back full circle, but I am still catching up on what happened during the 10 years I wasn't paying attention, but it has been really since then, and then especially in the last couple of years, um, a really big passion and bringing a lot of fun and great people into my life. 
that's one thing I have to say about the figure skating community, especially from the media perspective, is there are so many cool people that I feel I've gotten to meet through doing this. And Mm -hmm. I love it. It sort of feels, your story feels like sort of my story a little bit too, because I skated recreationally as a kid, teenager, and then was like, you know, a fan that followed the sport, but was looking to really use my media background because I worked at, at the time that I got started with figure skaters online, I was working for a TV station. So I was like, okay, how can I get involved more and use my media into something that I really enjoy? And then, you know, that was 10 years ago and then got really involved in the sport more than just being like a fan. Um, And, you know, as Daphne said, you meet the best people. I've met so many great people. I didn't meet no Daphne prior to... um, you know, getting into skating. And I found that when I was growing up, the only person I had to talk skating with was my mom. None of my friends cared about skating except the ones that were at the rink. And I only would see them, you know, a couple days a week. But, you know, this that's what I like this community now because it's a text message. Oh, did you hear this news? Did you hear that? Where I didn't have that because I would say, to somebody, hey, this about skating, and they would be like, what? Who cares? <laughs> so I love having the skating community now. Definitely. And for me, it was an online community before it was an in-person community. Mm-hmm. And so I'm so grateful for first Tumblr and then Twitter for being a space where I was able to find other people. And that's really, you know, the first opportunity that I had in journalism was because I guess I had been posting a lot of things about how much I liked Stefan Lambiel skating and had gotten talking to, it turns out there are several people who are in the media who are also big fans and had gotten chatting with Ray Golinski from Absolute Skating. And she was like, well, we don't have anyone going to Skate Canada. Do you want to go? And I was like, you don't, I'm a person on the internet. You don't know me. Yes, I want to go, but I think I could do this. It was kind of... It felt so out of the blue, but it was an amazing um, opportunity to get to do that. And it was my first time that I had ever been to a big competition and I was going as media and I was so starstruck. I remember like walking in the door and immediately almost running into Brian Orser and thinking, oh, okay, all of these people that have been on my TV (laughs) and on my you know, on YouTube or suddenly here in person. Um, So that was a bit of a trial by fire, but very fun. Yeah, that can be a lot at the beginning. I, my first time on a plane, I flew to the World Junior Championships in Kitchener. (laughs) So I'm sitting in the lobby and my sister is waiting with me. It's, um, you know, we're just having a conversation. She gets up and leaves and I'm just sitting there. Behind me, I hear two people talking and they're just like, yeah, we're going to go to the World Junior Championships. And I just, being the social person that I am, turn around and say, oh, I'm going too. And it was Peter Carruthers. <laughs> so this is, I think, back when he was doing commentary. So this was, you just don't know who's going to be on your flight. And as it turned out, he was seated next to me on the plane. So I was picking his brain the whole way there about things. Perfect. 
because um, that was my first um, my first flight, my first media credential, like for an international event. It was a really big deal. It is. And I think get, having to get over that feeling of being starstruck very quickly, because I think what I realized from that first combination, for the first competition, just hearing people chatting backstage and seeing how the skaters were with each other, it immediately was like, oh, okay, these are these are just real people. They're um, they, everyone knows each other. This is such a tiny world. Um, and I think seeing all of that very much made it much less scary and much less uh, intimidating. Um, and I realized that so much of the skills that I had learned um, from doing lobbying, actually, because that's what I had been doing a lot of was going into my state legislature and sort of standing in the halls and looking for the legislator I wanted to talk to and then trying to, you know, without looking too much like I was being a creepy stalker, like jump out and be like, hi, can I talk to you? <laughs> Um, and I realized that that skill was very similar to the, um, especially in a competition that doesn't have a formal structure for requesting interviews. A lot of it is just sort of lurking and trying to think, hmm, do they look busy right now? Could I go interrupt that person? Should I, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't, and figuring right. all of that out. So um, having to get over that um, social anxiety and nervousness very quickly if oh, I wanted yes. to actually yeah. do anything. And all it takes, I think, is that first time when you first start that baby step where you're going to go talk to someone once you get through that you feel good and you realize i can do this mm -hmm. i can but it takes a little bit of time i feel like you build up the courage to do it and it's it's not easy i remember being very intimidated the first time i went into a media room because i just didn't know if i belonged there and I look around now and realize that a lot of those people that were in that media room the first time I went in are no longer in the sport. Yeah, and I yeah. started realizing, I think it was at Nationals, I think I said to Gina or Anne, I said, we've become those people. <laughs> we've become the people <laughs> that are here and the newer people are coming in and not wanting to put off the the impression that to make people feel intim like they should be intimidated. Intimidated, right. Like it doesn't have to be that way. Definitely more intimidated by the other journalists, um, especially by the photographers with their seriousness and their putting your card down on the media table to reserve your spot. And I just was so afraid I was going to be, <laughs> you know, in the wrong place or mess something up for someone. And um, it is funny thinking about now that how familiar so many of those people are that whether I, some people I know well, other people just sort of as a face or somebody to say hello to, but it exactly the people that seemed intimidating at first. Now I realize, you know, yeah, yeah. I've become one. Of them. Yeah, exactly. I think there is a time that a transition happens and you're just kind of like, oh, I guess yeah. I'm that person. I had that feeling um, last week when I called into the U.S. Um, Olympic Committee press conference and realized that I was asking a question where the person before me was from the New York Times and the person <laughs> after me was from the Wall Street Journal. And I thought, wait, have I gone from sort of pretending to be a journalist to actually being a journalist when I didn't notice? 
So I heard you and I was like, way to go, Anna, (laughs) for asking a question because I was on that call, but couldn't ask because I was taking the call at work. So I (laughs) could not ask a question at the point, but I, I was glad to hear that it wasn't just, you know, the big time outlets that the skating journalists were in there asking the questions too you know not just the you know the wall street journal usa today yes some of them do cover our sport all the time you know they're there but most of them are the every four years so it was nice to a very big call that skating journalists were on that call the ones who are covering every competition whether it's the olympics or a little international in Estonia. Bavarian Open. Yes. It's one. Or, you know. Frambois. Yeah. Yes. yes, exactly. Small competitions or domestic competitions. And you, right. and you do start to look at it like, how do I fit in this when there's these big time reporters here? But what I kind of keep thinking to myself is we're here all the time. We're the ones that are doing the work when they're busy or it's not as high profile enough for them. And so, yeah. And so that makes me feel more responsible for the day to day and week to week versus the once every four years. And it's always nice when there is that opportunity to, you know, have the sport Oddly, but it's frustrating when it's only being shared by people who um, maybe don't know the backstories or, you know, some of the things that get held up as great achievements are not necessarily those things that, you know, those of us who are following the sport all the time would point to as the things that we thought were the biggest achievements of the season. Yeah. And so sometimes I think, do they know more than we do? Because they know what appeals to the general public or do we know more? And that that's, would appeal to the general public if we had the audience. And I don't have an answer to that question, but it is something that I think about a lot. Yeah, it's hard to think about how to build an audience in a sport that is so niche. And it has waned in popularity over, you know, at least the last 10 to 15 years. It's just, I look at where it was when I went to my first U.S. championships and where it is now. And it's just not in the same place, although there are still components that are very much the same. It has just, the the interest, we still have Bill Hirsch, Christine Brennan, they are regularly part of the whole thing. But the others, John Powers is one, I think he worked for the Boston Globe. He's retired and, you know, I don't think they even send anyone anymore. And so others have have moved on to cover other sports or other types of news. And then if the broadcasters, if the only journalists that are the, you know, that are quote unquote professionals that are at places are those who represent, you know, whichever um, TV broadcaster has the contract, I think they have an important role to play, but the questions they ask and their interests there are different Mm -hmm. as well Mm -hmm. because their motivations are to build up stars to tell certain kinds of stories that will increase the, you know, the viewership or what they would see as the viewership of the sport. Mm -hmm. And so it's very different. You know, you just had 
Gracie Gold on your podcast and I just finished reading her book and I was thinking what she had to say about the media was very interesting and I think a lot about um, what is the role of the media in building up athletes, tearing them down. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be a part of making it harder on athletes. And so I try to think of it as being, I want to tell their stories. And I think that that's what would be appealing to, um, you know, to the audience, to the fans, understanding, you know, who the skaters are as people, what's motivating them, what interests them, all of that. Um, and I know I'm always more interested really watching any sport. If I feel like I understand who the people are and what, you know, their struggles and triumphs are going to be. So that's the part that I am the most interested in when I go to competitions. And then I want to save my sort of hard probing questions for the institutions and to be, um, uh, much more critical when it comes to some of the the systems and the power structures in the sport. But, um, you know, mm-hmm. I don't want to be hard on the athletes in a sport that's already hard enough on them. Yeah, we did have Gracie on the podcast and we read the book, both of us, over four days. I'm glad, well, I didn't take the four days. I wish I had taken a little... I wish I had gone a little slower because some of it was really hard to digest and not because it wasn't written well, but because the content and the subject matter was incredibly troubling. And Mm -hmm. Gracie said some really interesting things when we had her on and we're hoping to have her come back because we just scratched the surface. The time just went so fast and it was over. It's like, oh my gosh, but we, we, there's all this that we want to know. Right. Um, so we're hoping to get her to come back on and talk with us. But some of the things she said about media, I thought were pretty interesting, such as skaters really want to be asked more than what did you think of your performance? <laughs> they really want questions that show that the journalist took a little bit of time to research who they were going to be talking to. Yeah, because... That's where I was really, you know, interested in because reading her book, when she had those discussions about the mixed zones, I was like, I think I was a part of those mixed zones. And you don't really know what the skater is going through inside. So you're just asking the questions, just, well, you know, how did you think you skated? Da, 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 da. But you don't really know the inner story. And it's like, how, as a journalist, do you tell the story in the best way, knowing that you might not have the full story. That's And that was what I was trying to kind of get to where I was like, how can we be better as journalists to tell your story and being respectful that we may not know the full story, like what you're actually going through, you know, mentally. And um, yeah. so that was, I, I still have more questions for her in those regards. Yeah. Just because... We, I want to do better. If I haven't done a good enough job, I want to do better. And I, you know, so those are, that's where it's hard as a journalist because you are telling their stories, but you only are going to get the story they're going to give you in a sense. Yeah. I also, it's really challenging in those moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and especially if a skater's, you know, just had a, a rough performance, you know, try to, um, 
you want to say something encouraging. And it's interesting to think, you know, for some skaters, that might just feel totally wrong. They don't want to hear anything positive in that moment. For somebody else, it could be really nice to know that somebody still found something good to watch in their program. And that's going to be so much dependent on the person. I mean, over time, as you get to know people, you might have a sense of like, who's always going to have like a million analytical things to say right, right after their skate, no matter who, you know, how they skated versus who's going to be, you know, if they had a bad skate, they just really just want you to let them go. go. Yeah. Um, yeah. Over time, <laughs> yeah. you get to learn that. But I think it's also something that I feel like it would be nice if we could all kind of give, e- give each other the the space to be able to say, you know, if the skater would say, you know, can I do, sometimes I do, like, can I go take my skates off and take five minutes and then come back? And some skaters have done that mm-hmm. and come back yeah. and then been in a better place to answer the question. And if we can all, you know, give each other that space, yeah. then that's nice. Mm-hmm. It just always worked out. Yeah. But... yeah. I think being conscientious about it, like listening and, you know, getting to know the skater and paying attention. You may learn mm-hmm. over time, okay, he or she, they don't, they need a couple minutes and then they'll come talk yep. to you understanding that because you'll one you'll probably end up with much better sound bites because they're going to be in the frame of mind that they need to be in i don't think that we need to have shock value with microphones in athletes faces immediately what did you think of that that's kind of old school maybe but i don't think that's how it needs to be i think it can be better i think we can be better And I do think that skating media as a whole is evolving still, especially with online media, which has really been a thing over the last, at least since 2006. And I started my site even before that. But I feel like we've been almost 20 years of online media and sometimes we're still grappling or scratching to get some of the respect that the print media, the long time, you know, newspaper media has had. And that's not anything against what they have put together and been able to produce. It just would be great if we knew what we need to do in order to, I mean, I don't think that I'm going to have magical photos on the level of Matt Stockman, who shoots for Getty. (laughs) But I'd like to know, what do I need to do? Or what do my journalists need to do to be recognized? Because I feel like some of the best stories that we've been getting have been coming from online media outlets. Yeah, and that's something I've been so grateful for in, you know, in various times when I've had editors that I've had to, you know, that I've had to say, what about me interviewing this person? That that's almost always been a sure and now i really make i mostly um work with anything goes and we're all collaborative and so i get to make those choices but um often the people that i want to interview are not necessarily the ones that won the competition i want to interview the people i think would be interesting Mm -hmm. to talk to and so i always get you know appreciate that because then i think it's more interesting for everybody um but i'm very grateful for that flexibility um that comes with not needing to satisfy any, you know, ultimately anyone but myself or our team. Um, But it does mean in some ways, I think we 
we don't have the same amount of power because we could always be excluded. Mm -hmm. And at least this is how it feels to me, which is when, um, you know, if the ISU or the you or US figure skating or skate Canada or whoever, you know, was running accreditation for a competition, didn't give accreditation to Christine Brennan, the world would know about it yes. the next day and it would be a big <laughs> You know, they didn't give accreditation yes. to from one of the major Japanese newspapers that would be a huge no they would never do that um but and while you know has it happened that someone hasn't gotten accreditation from a um online source because they weren't liked or they didn't play by the rules I mean I don't know maybe it, they maybe that's happened but we live in that fear mm -hmm. that because the power lies with the sports organization that is giving us the accreditation and it is treated as a favor. If we have space, maybe there'll be room for some online publications is very much how it's framed. I don't, you know, I'm not saying anything against, you know, the comms people from any of these organizations. I think they're actually have all been super pleasant to work with. Everyone tries really hard to get us what we need. And I don't feel that level of like discrimination or something when it comes to asking questions in a press conference or how we're treated in that way. But there's something that's more subtle about it, which does mean that if um, there are restrictions put up about, you know, you can't ask this, these kind of questions to this person. Well, what are we going to do? Go against that and risk um, that that federation doesn't give you access to their athletes anymore. There's a power dynamic there that other um that the traditional journalists don't have to deal with and so it's something that i'm very grateful for the few that we have that are still in the sport and paying attention and following because they can be aggressive mm -hmm. and ask hard questions in a way that is um much more difficult and i have always said that i didn't want to be so tied to having access to competitions that it would stop me from saying something that I, you know, really believed in. This is not, this is not my professional job. I, I do have more freedom in that way, but I do feel that, um, that push and pull because you want access. And I think that it's that same, that same, you know, don't cut me off from this small world it keeps a lot of us quiet in a lot of ways. And I think it, it's the same thing for athletes and for judges and for everyone in this sport that um, there is this sense that everything depends on your ability to, you know, play in this small world. And there are only a few decision makers when it comes to that. So that may sound dramatic. No, it's but that's, totally uh, true. No, I've tried to mm -hmm. think about it. This is the dynamic that I feel like we do run up against. It's like chess. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like it's chess. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it in some ways it has. Um, yes, this is a, a story about like the two types of media that get to play in this space and why it is that the major, you know, print media and those who follow a certain kind of code of journalistic ethics, I guess, um, aren't mostly in this space. And it definitely changes the playing space. But I think it's also 
connected to a lot of the power dynamics that go across the whole sport. And one of the things that I find really interesting, and this is something I think more and more as I talk to people on my podcast and I try to have conversations about why things are the way they are and what would it take to change them is just how powerless so many people feel, including people who I think probably have more power than they think they do, especially if they would speak up together. But there is this real sense of, oh, there's the powers that be and don't mess, you know, don't push too hard, don't mess with them. And that applies not only to journalists, but to a lot of people in the sport. Yeah, I think that when Gracie was talking about meeting with Tracy Merrick, who's the new CEO of U.S. Figure Skating, I felt a little bit of hope after hearing that because... Mm -hmm. I just don't remember that ever happening before. Um, not like that. But Gracie was very, you know, open about it. She met with her for a couple of hours and Tracy took notes. And I saw her at Nationals, Tracy. She was around the whole the time. time. The whole weekend. It was incredible to see her just interacting with people. And that is yeah, I have mm -hmm. to think that maybe she is trying to understand how the sport works and maybe how to, if not fix it, kind of recharge it or restart it to be something better. We all have a part to play. Like media has mm -hmm. its part to play. I'm just hoping that everyone who has a part to play within the system can do it in a way that is the most positive for the athletes. And the same thing goes for, I think, how we talk about, you know, whether it's U.S. figure skating or the ISU or any of these structures, which these are big, complex organizations. It's They're very hard to change. The person who is the CEO in name has a million stakeholders that they have to keep happy. Like all of these things are hard. And so within these big institutions, there are both like people who are doing great work and trying really hard to change things and people who are like the absolute worst and a lot of people in the middle and a lot of structures and all of these things. And so it's it's complex. And that doesn't mean that we don't keep pushing for the absolute best out of it, but Sometimes I get frustrated. I mean, I'm going to say sometimes I get frustrated with Twitter. Of course you get frustrated yes. with Twitter. <laughs> As someone who tends to see myself um, usually in the role of the, you know, advocate pushing from the outside, and I do feel that way in this space, I also recognize that just saying, you know, the ISU sucks, it's evil, it's terrible, that's not necessarily going to help us unless we have a sense of, well, why and who's trying to make change and in what ways and what ideas are being proposed and what things have been tried before and why or why not, you know, why they didn't work or why they did. And so all of those things. And so I could both believe that Tracy could have been really seriously taking on Gracie's feedback and be really trying to listen and learn from it. And I can hold that at the same time as I can think about Ashley Wagner talking about her deep frustration and having felt like she shared a lot of feedback and then it going nowhere and then feeling cut out of that system. And so these things can both, these things can both be true. Yes. And so I just 
Mm-hmm. Yes. Let's try not to demonize anybody, but keep trying to hold them accountable to higher standards. I think mm-hmm. that Gracie's book has come out at a time where it's definitely been polarizing to anyone who has read it. I've Most of the feedback that I've read, in fact, all of the feedback I've read has been incredibly positive about how open she was with everything. I am hopeful that her shining a lens behind the curtain a little bit might jumpstart some conversations because that's the thing it all can start with a conversation you can get some momentum from that and for the people i mean there are some things that are very unique to her story but i'm also thinking about you know having read karina manta's book having read kira corpy's memoir there are a number of people who in different ways have been sharing things and there's a lot of similarities Mm -hmm. across these and so I think they're all individually super important, but also this is where, and this is where my like political organizer like hat comes on is that I want to say like, what does it look like for people to start having those conversations with each other and starting to share? And um, because I think all of these um, particularly former athletes um, who are trying to have a role in the sport in all different kinds of ways have a lot of power and part of their power comes from the fact that they have an audience mm-hmm. outside of mm-hmm. yeah you know they can try to work within the system but they have tens or hundreds of thousands of instagram followers you know you put everybody together like that's real it power is. um and i think that they don't because they're used to feeling like their lives are dependent on the judges on the federation and all of that I think it's harder for athletes and in general, and then especially in figure skating to want to own that mm-hmm. power. Um, but I think there's more there, especially if people were, you know, going to stand up and support each other in it. And that's, I mean, I do see that happening more and more. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Especially I think over the last couple of years, I think there has been more visible support for things. And then there's also been the the lack of visible support for for certain things cuz the sport has gone through a lot since I would say 2016 2017 there have just you know we've had our share of scandals since then um and even before that things were happening and just not talked about and so finally it's it's becoming common now for this information to come out and it's very difficult to hear or see that someone you thought you knew might not be the person mm-hmm. you thought they were i mean all of this i was thinking of the the first people that i ever interviewed were um vanessa james and morgan mm-hmm. seafrey so you know like i think about that i think and this is i mean also this is why i thought probably the most controversial, but in some ways, I think the most important part of Gracie's book was talking about John Coughlin yes. and talking about the the awkwardness and the difficulty of really caring about someone and then thinking, well, maybe there's this other side of this person and just all of the different sides that she had to say about that situation and about him. And yeah. I just, I think it's, and not everyone's going to be happy with what she had to say, but I no. think in with like the really hard complex truth 
that's so important because it opens up space for other people to say, yeah, this isn't just a, a black and white situation. Right. I'm also having complicated feelings. And then when people start to process through those feelings, yeah. then it, it lets yeah. them move forward. And I think a lot of times we get stuck in a bucket and we can't get out because we're stuck in, well, this is the way it is, or this is the way it's always been. And I think sometimes you have to think outside the box. You have to think right. outside the bucket. You have to find a way to move forward. And I think that I agree with you. Gracie's chapter on John Coughlin, you could tell or feel the honesty and the mm -hmm. candidness and the conflict, like how conflicted she was about what she was thinking and how she was feeling. And I appreciated that chapter because I think when you're close, like, as I said earlier, when you're close to someone and you, you've never seen a side to them that is what's been described, right? you're, you're so conflicted and you're so confused and you just don't know how to process it because right. you can't reconcile it. And yeah. so I appreciated so much that she, that she, you know, included that chapter in the book. Yeah. Well, and because I'm always so solution oriented and how I think about things, I wanted, like, I thought she had some great ideas about what might make things better, but I'm like, oh, that's, I want to have that. So maybe I will have that conversation with her at some point, yeah. but that's the, you know, the, mm -hmm. there's so many of those things. Like, and yet we have to sit with the hard mm -hmm. things before we can figure out how to right. fix yeah. them. And yeah. there's a big part of me that's like, oh, interesting. So I wonder how, like, you know, if this had had been different, well, you know, what would have been? And I think a lot of what makes it not just a, you know, a manifesto, but her story and being so personal is the, you know, the doubt of like how much of this is skating and how much of it is, her, you know, her family and how much of it is her. Mm -hmm. Like all of that is so true and human, and we never really know. Um, but. Um, at the same time, I, I keep thinking about what are all of the systemic implications of it. Yeah, I think there's definitely room for improvement that goes without saying. I am hoping that Gracie's book is a catalyst or at least part of a catalyst so that we can move in that direction. I think, you know, the time has come and it's actually the time came a while ago i think it's you know it's really time um and i i hope that we're building a skating community that encourages people to be able to come forward and one of the things we want to talk about in thinking about safe spaces in the future of our sport let's talk a bit about why you got started with your podcast, Future of Figure Skating. So the idea for the podcast came after I had done an interview with Ashley Wagner for Absolute Skating. I had gone to her skate and sculpt class and had really enjoyed it and just so appreciated what she was talking about and how she had been covering the Valieva case while she was on TV during the Olympics. And I was just like, this is somebody who's doing really interesting things. And we had such a good conversation and it made me feel in the wake of the 2022 Olympics, when I felt like all of the dark sides of the sport were kind of on show, it was very depressing. 
it was really encouraging to see, okay, here is someone who is talking about all of the dark sides and is trying to find a way forward. And I enjoyed that conversation so much that it made me think, who else is out there having doing that work? And I was running into more and more people, some in the work I was doing as a journalist, but also because I'm an adult skater and I'm in a um, gender nonconforming pair team. And I was meeting people through that who were doing really interesting work in Canada around gender inclusion. I just like started thinking, oh, wow, there are a lot of people out there. And it's true because the more and more that I start looking, the more people I find who are doing good and interesting things. And so I had the idea that um, I wanted to have long form conversations that didn't really fit within the mold exactly of what you can do at a competition, you know, talking to, and I do talk to some currently competitive skaters, but fewer probably than I talk to other people in the sport. And part of what I wanted to do was to say, there are people in all different parts of this sport. There are judges, there are people who are working behind all these behind the scenes roles. There are coaches and choreographers and people who are doing um, interesting things in contemporary skating, totally separate from the competitive world. Like I wanted to talk about all of those sides and try to connect them to each other. I'm a very synthetic thinker in the sense that um, I start to see how everything connects and then I have trouble paring it all down to just one very, you know, short and specific thing. And so podcasting was perfect for, you know, for that. No, even though I try to keep things to a, um, to some themes and specific questions, but it was a great opportunity to have those conversations and starting from a place of really my own curiosity of what would it take for skating, which is something that I love, both doing it and watching it. I think it's something that is so unique and special. And I want it to be something that is joyful and healthy and all of this. And so believing that that's possible, but also believing that there are so many ingrained things that are fighting against that right now, how do we get there? And so that's been the big question that's been underlying the podcast. Um, I've been trying to have as much diversity of guests as I can. Um, and I've gotten to have some really great conversations. I have um, 28 episodes out right now, and I have four more recorded that I haven't released yet and three more that I'm recording in the next couple of weeks because somehow this part of the season <laughs> after all fall, it was very hard to get anybody scheduled. And then suddenly everyone was saying mm -hmm. yes. So now I'm uh, very behind <laughs> on editing, but. I'm very excited about what it started, what it started doing because it started um, the best moments for me are that I've had a couple of times I've had people reach out to me wanting to be on mm -hmm. the podcast because they've had things to share, which has been amazing. And that I've had people re reference, I listened to this episode and I thought, oh, what this person was talking about was so interesting and connected to what I was doing. And that that's what I wanted mm -hmm. to do. I wanted to create connections um, and make people believe that change is possible because they're not the only person who may be, you know, in their rink or in their club or in their federation or whatever, you know, who is thinking these ways or fighting their own fight that they're part of a community. And we don't all have to agree about what the solutions are, but that there are a lot of people out there who are thinking and trying things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think they're the people you've had on your podcast are all trying to move the sport forward in different ways. So you've had like, you know, with the whole gender in inclusion, 
that was, you know, there's skaters who are working towards that. And then, you know, um, diversify ice with, you know, they've are doing, you know, things for minorities. And so you just, you've had a, a wide range of guests all trying to move the sport forward, but in very different ways is what I found by listening to some of your episodes. It's just, there are a lot of people out there, you know, past competitors, judges, just all from different areas of the sport that are trying to move skating forward in many different ways. And, you know, the most recent episode I had out was with someone who you've had on as well, Johanna Alik. And one of the things that she said that has been sticking with me was saying, you know, there's there's room for everybody to be pushing things, you know, if you love skating, to be finding a way to be moving it forward and that she's found some ways and that there are people who are doing, you know, all different kinds of roles. And some of my favorite conversations have been with people who are doing very behind the scenes things that, you know, I always try to balance people who will have recognizable names with people who um, I think are really interesting, but no one, you know, <laughs> has ever heard of before. Um, because I know, you know, I, I can see that what gets listened to and what, all of that. But I try to I try to mix it up because I think some of the most interesting conversations have been with people who are not mm-hmm. the household name, but are have really interesting ideas or are trying really innovative things, um, whether that be, you know, having ideas about how to change the rules in the judging system or thinking about different ways of teaching skating mm-hmm. at a, you know, at an introductory level and how that could change things for people. And just, it's been really cool to see that diversity that is out there. Mm-hmm. And that I think is increasingly out there. And um, again, I think there's a really interesting thing with people of all ages, but there is a really, I would say, a generation of skaters who retired in the last, you know, five to eight years um, who are really coming to terms with both the trauma in a lot of ways of their skating careers and wanting to do things differently and not just replicate that if they stay in the sport. And I find that very encouraging Mm -hmm. that people are trying to, you know, break, break with that past, but do it in a way that is state that is not giving up on skating. Yeah. I think long-term sustainability for this sport is really going to hinge on building connections between people and learning how to work a little bit better together than Mm -hmm. we have. I think, you know, why does it have to be a controversy or drama to draw people in to the sport? Yeah. (laughs) I feel like in some cases that is what is presented out there. And I'm just thinking... Why? Why does it have to be that? Why can't it be a really cool story about our first, the first bisexual, pansexual U.S. women's champion? I mean, to me, that is a great opportunity for promotion. Amber is such a great example, exactly, that, you know, and that she is, um, you know, such an interesting and outspoken person. Her story in skating, I think, is really, is really interesting that that part of her identity very much mm-hmm. related, but not only that, 
you know, I think about Deanna Stellato as another mm -hmm. example of somebody that um, has a great story that we, you know, can be telling. There's There are a lot of people in the sport who have that. Um, and, you know, one thing, and this goes right back to that, you know, that very first conversation that I had with Ashley um, was the realization that she was describing her experience of um, being 27, 28 and being at the rink and having people feel like, even though she was like three-time national champion, Olympian, all of that, that people would look at her and be like, why are you here? Like, what's the point of you skating anymore? Mm. And it made me realize, I was like, yeah, that's the way I felt when I was 17 and I didn't have an axle. And people were like, why are you here? And having that realization that I could have felt the same way as her, despite wildly different, you know, skating experiences and levels of skill, um, the way that we push people out of the sport mm. at all levels um, if they don't hit exactly these very precise benchmarks, look exactly the right way, um, you know, fit in in all of these specific ways. It doesn't only keep us from having, you know, more diverse champions, but it also means like we don't have all of those people filling the ranks of recreational skaters, adult skaters, all of this that could be, you know, growing the sport at in that participatory way. But then also those people don't stay fans. <laughs> Their families don't keep watching skating. They're like, I am done with this. This thing was negative for me. And so I just think, you know, at what, yes, we are, we have this system that is to produce the champion, you know, with the idea that if we win medals, the sport will be popular and all of the resources will trickle down. But what would it look like to have a model of the sport that was about, you know, growing engagement at the bases so that, you know, resources, because you could, you could make this be all about money if you wanted to, resources are coming up from mm. the ground level because this is something that people want to engage with. They want to put their kids into that it feels really positive and that we can, that they can look up to those who are at the highest levels mm -hmm. of it, but in a way that um, is uh, that, yeah, that feels positive and encouraging. And so all of that, um, I, the more, like I said, I'm somebody who senses, tends to hear how everything connects, but as I look at it, I really do think that these questions of you know, adult skating and recreational skating, and what does it look like to have like, accessible clubs for people in different, you know, and what does that look like in different countries and why is skating so expensive and why is it so, you know, non-welcoming to people who don't fit into exactly the class or racial model of it. Those are questions I think are also so um, connected to these, we, when we look at what's going on at the like upper competitive level. And so um, I try to say, hopefully I'm not just saying that because, you know, I'm an adult skater and I'd like to see um, that treated with more respect, but I think that it is deeply integrated with how we're also treating, you know, young elite athletes as well. Yeah. I think mm -hmm. it's possible to do both where we can support and promote our athletes and build them into champions while also growing things from the ground up and creating, you know, a community a whole community yeah. around this and where community actually means community and support system. It's possible. Yeah. Like it is really possible. And skating, skating is not the only sport that this happens in. 
this happens in so many other mm-hmm. different sports mm-hmm. or activities where you're supposed to look a certain way or you don't fit in or people will just scream about randomness because Twitter <laughs> we haven't moved on from Twitter we're still like it's X but we call it Twitter um yeah I, I'm not I'm not changing I I haven't even updated the app <laughs> somehow it's still working so. um yeah I mean it's just continual body shaming goes on not only in skating but in everyday life in other forms of entertainment And we have to make it normal. And this is something I think we talked about with Gracie is making it normal to, to prioritize the things that we need to, in order to be healthy. And in order to do that in this sport, it's really difficult because of the way and the focus that's on every young athlete. It's, it's a lot. I, I, I would buckle under the pressure and I'm not, I'm not a child. I'm an adult. I would not be able to handle some of the stuff that I hear goes on. And having been involved in the sport for almost 25 years, I have seen and heard a lot. Um, although some, I will admit some of what was in Gracie's book shocked me. Because it was even beyond what I was expecting. And so I think it's important to, you know, to build the connections. I I think similarly to you when it comes to, I do want to solve the problem. And I think building connections is usually one of the earliest building blocks to doing that. And so, you know, I guess time will tell if... Gracie's book had a an impact or can be a catalyst I think as long as we use social media to continually remind like they did with the medals it it took two years for the athletes to get their medals from Beijing I think social media can be a good place to be able to Kind, it almost feels like you're beating your head against a wall, but at least you feel like I'm doing something. Getting mm-hmm. it out there, reminding people, and keeping it on front of mind versus letting it die out is just... I was so grateful that the U.S. was speaking out because there are a lot of times when these decisions get made and people grumble about them, but they don't actually get challenged or they don't get challenged in ways that we can see. But if we can't see them then there's nothing to stop it. those complaints from just getting shut down again. Yeah. Um, this is one of the things that I've been very interested in is looking at how athlete activism happens within other sports, in particular within like professional sports and team sports that have unions and have more ability to, for ad- athletes to advocate for themselves. And just when you look at that, then you look at things like, you know, the Athletes Commission and athlete representatives that exist within skating and you realize that those athletes are put into a, such a difficult place because they don't really have any, they don't have any power. They don't have any real representational power. Um, they don't have the connections back to a base that can support them. Um, you know, we don't have, it's very difficult for athletes to speak out in this space. So then we have to have 
you know, the federations have to be doing that advocacy. We have to see people who are in those, who have more of that power, um, you know, be doing it. And so I was glad um, to see, you know, the U.S. in that space advocating. And I hope, and it seems like they are to some degree continuing to, you know, continuing to push to support Canada in their pushes to, you know, to try to keep asking the questions of WADA about doping, about um, what does it look like to have accountability beyond just the athlete with the violation, um, because it's not enough just for the U.S. athletes to get their medals if this these systems are all still in place. And so I was a little nervous when I was first seeing the well, let's let's just have our medal ceremony, and who don't, let's not worry about whether the bronze will be there. I understand like why the athletes want to need it now um, or as soon as possible, but um, I hope that you know the U.S., which does have a lot of weight in the Olympic movement overall, even more so than within skating specifically, does continue to you know throw that throw that weight around if they can do it in service of trying to make the system better. Well, I think their marketing campaign of having the athletes stand there with empty metal boxes was incredibly effective. Oh, Whoever yeah. came up with that idea, mm -hmm. that yeah. was that was incredible marketing because right. you can't look at them and not feel frustration for them. Right. Those were definitely... And kudos to, I mean, to thinking about um, what Evan and Maddie have done, what Vincent has done, what Alex and Brandon have done to be mm -hmm. spokespeople and to doing that advocacy, I think is, it's really important. I'm, I'm, you know, and they're, they have the backing of the Federation and the Olympic Committee to do right. it, which makes it easier for them. I'm very glad that they, you know, that they have been um, playing that role. Yeah, we had Vincent on our podcast, one of our earliest interviews, I think, that we did and he had a lot to say and he mm -hmm. was very candid about everything because he had multiple I mean he had more than just well this was the team event and we didn't get medals he had his whole entire experience <laughs> in Beijing yeah yeah that he talked about and he was very very yeah. candid about it and we we appreciated that because that's what mm -hmm. people I feel like in podcasting people want to hear they want to hear things that are a little bit raw they don't yeah. you know with icedance.com I've always focused on trying to promote everything as positively as possible for the athletes and and everything and with this podcast it's really stretched because I'm asking tougher questions and I'm mm -hmm. having to think on my feet about the answers that come out. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's a lot different. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. For sure. To, to do that. Well, yeah. we only have a couple more questions before we'll wrap up. One of them is you mentioned that you are doing pairs. What has that experience been like? Yeah, so I've been learning pairs. Um, I, like I said, I'm an adult skater. I'm, you know, not a particularly skilled one. You know, single jumps levels of skating. Yes, I'm right there with um, you. <laughs> um, but um, I, when I started back as an adult skater, um, one of the friends that I made through the 
group lesson program at my local rink um, uh, is, her name is Erica Rand and she's been skating for a long time. She's professor of gender studies and has written books about skating and stuff. So I, you know, I had somebody immediately to talk to about skating and um, she'd always wanted to try Paris. We had this opportunity at our um, local outdoor rink was doing this benefit for the Equality Center. They were doing this sort of out on ice thing. And at first they were just going to have drag queens come out on a red carpet on the ice and perform. And um, Erica was like, no, we have to get some like local queer skaters to come out and perform. And so she was like, we're going to do, we should try to do a little Paris number. So that's how we got started. We took a few lessons from a local coach and um, it just was so much fun to skate with somebody else. I really enjoyed it. And then when we started, we had the idea that we were going to learn um, everything both ways, um, that we were both going to learn how to do the throws and we we're going to do all of this stuff. We quickly realized that um, height difference actually does matter um, and that it made a lot more sense, not with everything, but with some things. It made more sense for me to be the one you know, doing the throwing and the lifting because I'm 511 and um we have a, what we realized is that we actually have a very typical um height difference for a pair team um in like the gap between us is very matches very much onto um the typical gap for a pair team but we started learning things and we were having so much fun and then as we were looking at it it started to become this question of well could we take the adult bronze test and could we compete in in pairs and what became obvious then was that not in the US, that in the way the system is set up, um, still a pair is defined as a man and a woman. There's a little leeway for same gender pairs to compete, but only against like couples, which is kind of how much would that come up? You know, I think that exception was made because of the gay games. There's a whole history there, but it's not a very useful. And still, basically, despite the fact that, you know, I'm non-binary lifting a woman same as timothy leduc and, and ashley kane but because they were grandfathered into the system and timothy was grandfathered into the system um that they were you know able to compete but according to the rules shouldn't have been necessarily um that's still the way the rules are written in the u.s and so running into that we then realized that in canada um there are they had started changing the rules at the time just for adults and um, that what they're called their um, star programs like Excel in the US is their sort of lower competitive level program. And so we started getting connected to people in Canada and we've gotten to have some really amazing training opportunities. We've gone and done some clinics in um, in Halifax where we've gotten to train with Kirsten Mortowers and Mike Marinaro and a bunch of novice teams. So the more that we've done it, the more we've started to treat it very seriously. I'm a much more serious skater and athlete now than I ever was as a kid. Um, and the skating itself is so much fun. I love skating with a partner. Learning pairs is so much fun and, um, and challenging, like having to learn how to do lifts is a totally different thing than anything I'd ever done before. But it's also combined with you know, with the politics of it, because for us to be allowed to skate and compete will take a rule change. And so we're very close to having the lift that we need to be able to do in order to test. Um, we have, we can do the lift, but not rotate it yet. So, you know, it, it's, it's happening, but the goal is to then see if we're, you know, if we enter a competition, what will they do? Because it'll be different to have 
an actual team that they're saying no to than just having the rules in the mm -hmm. abstract. Mm -hmm. So somehow my own skating has also become a campaign, um, <laughs> even though that's not how it started, but it's been a lot of fun um, to do it. And um, because I've loved it so much and it's made being tall an advantage instead of a disadvantage for the first time in my life as a skater, um, I'm, I've now become a big advocate for, um, you know, getting people to try pairs or try dance or, you know, try uh, partnered skating earlier in their careers, because I think a lot of people, you know, it's hard to find someone to skate with and people kind of resist it who want to do singles, but it's so much fun. Well, and their Canada did change their roles. Right. Yeah, right. and so that that's the the conclusion of, or not the the next step of the story that I didn't get to right is that they now have gone from just from the initial change to now having it all the way up through national champions and I'm I'm so so excited to see the um novice pre novice yeah. teams that were competing. Yeah. That was that was really cool. It was so great. Clips were posted on Twitter and being in ice dance you know the ratio of male to female skaters it's mm -hmm. i mean it's very difficult for a girl to get a partner it's always been difficult for a girl to get a partner and so if you have all of these skaters that don't have partners why limit them when they could be skating and learning all the partner right pieces um I mean, that be beautiful and, performance by Madison and Gabriella, uh -huh. it, it's just, you just start to realize that there can be more, there can be more opportunities. Right. And people are- And it's great that yeah. we have solo dance for those who don't have partners. Mm -hmm. It's a whole other avenue, but could we have these- solo dancers paired up and just have creating these you know another opportunity um you know so it was great seeing those pre-novice novice um skaters i was so glad that they <laughs> that they're starting to be that they were showing that they yeah. were there that people are taking advantage of this opportunity but also because it takes a little bit of the pressure off of erica and i because i was like we need somebody in between Maddie and Gabby at the like <laughs> Olympic champion level and like us with our like throw single sow cow like we need we need a, a, someone in the, in the middle of this we can't be you know the only uh the only people out here um but we're not and I mean and we haven't been I think one of the things I've learned is like there have been people who have been um you know teaming up outside of the established you know gender roles for a very long time and trying to push this for a very long time but I think we're now in a place that this change is really happening and um, it may take a long time for it to become international, but maybe not as long as I um, initially thought. I'm starting to, I think at least for dance, um, for a bunch of reasons, not only the um, technical difficulty, um, but I think Paris is going to take longer. Um, but part of what I've been finding out with Paris that's so interesting is that yes, the height difference matters. But that height difference doesn't have to be a gendered height difference. It just usually is in skating because the tall women have been pushed out of the sport well before they get to that point, usually. And so there's a, just an interesting dynamic there. And I think a lot of things we are not going to, we're not going to know what's possible until the opportunities exist for people to start 
challenging it. Um, so I think it may take a while for us to see, you know, top level pair teams that are two men or two women or pairs of any gender, but I think it's going to happen eventually. It just may take longer um, to get to that point than it will in dance. Yeah, I think, you know, the two disciplines, despite them saying for years, well, the difference is in dance, you don't hold someone over your head. And you don't jump and, and you dance. You don't jump and dance. <laughs> there's, I mean, I know that things have gotten a little blurred, but to me, they're still fundamentally different. And I've seen dance go from being the least popular discipline to where it is today, where the U.S. has won multiple Olympic medals in ice dance. Often when our singles are faltering, you know, often when the singles are faltering, um, I think there, you yeah. know, there's more opportunities. I think we ha we need to look at. I'm a big fan of let's, you know, the more opportunities that exist, the more people will come mm -hmm. out, you know, to fill them. Like we don't have to, I think in a lot of ways, because of how skating has declined in the North mm -hmm. America and just in a lot of places, there's been this sense of scarcity and then that makes people scared and they want to hold on to what they've got and it works against change until it hits a tipping point where people are like, well, we have to do something. Right. Um, and I think we're kind of in that we have to mm -hmm. do something place right now. But also, I do think that, you know, yes, let's, you know, let's have solo dance, let's have theater on ice, let's have synchro, let's have all of these things because they're all going to fill different niches for, you know, different personalities, different body types. People have just have different interests in the sport. And, you know, let's, I'm, I'm a, let's have all of it. Um, person. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like that may be stressful for figuring, you know, who's going to write all those rules and run all those right. competitions. And, <laughs> yeah, but I think, you know, I'm a, definitely a, if you build it, they'll come yeah. kind of person. And so I'm very, I'm actually very optimistic about a lot of those changes with the new disciplines. And I do um, kind of like how I feel like skating is not only what it has been, but I like see a better future for it. I, that's how I feel about pairs as well, which in some ways is <laughs> the least discipline. It's the one that, you know, has some of the hardest, like darkest stories that comes out of it. I really do think that there is a way that pairs can it also be better and beautiful and be a positive thing in the world? So I'm, um, I'm hoping that you know we can also. The other alternatives are also great, but I keep hoping that somehow, even within sort of that discipline, there's a way forward. Yeah. Well, Anna, we appreciate you coming on our podcast and talking to us. We'll definitely have you back when we do a pairs panel because. It's about that time that we did another one. We love to get the pulse check. Well, I'm the, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I am a big partisan for, you know, for, uh, for pairs. I'm a big booster of it. So I'm always, always happy to have that um, conversation. And thank you so much for having me. So can you let folks know where they can find you? Yeah. So you can find me with the podcast. It's future figure skating we are on instagram on all of the um we're on instagram we're on twitter we are on all of the podcast platforms we have a youtube channel now and are starting to do more video episodes so all of the previous episodes are up there but then the most recent couple and going forward we're trying to do with video um 
And then um, I also mostly these days write for anything GOEs. So that's where most of my interviews and my Paris series are. Um, and I'm also on Twitter at Choreo Sequence if people want to follow me there. Gina, can you let folks know where they can find us? Well, you can find us at our website. It's thisweekinskating.com on social media, including the site formerly known as Twitter. You call it Twitter. You call it X. Whatever you want to call it. Just that's where it is. At this WK in skating, Facebook, Instagram, and threads. It's This Week in Skating. We love your feedback or your questions. You can reach out to us on social media or email us at thisweekinskating at gmail.com. We, if you're enjoying our episodes... Check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash thisweekinskating. And with that, though, we have reached the end of our episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm Daphne. And I'm Gina. And you've been listening to This Week in Skating. Have an ice week! Ice week!